session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra, doing the show on Instagram Live, so not taking calls tonight. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get into the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli J. Finkel. The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. And uh, I saw a lot of good reviews and, and people talking about this book. I think it came out a couple of years ago, and I'd heard the title before, but decided to check it out. So looking forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you on next week's show, The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli J. Finkel. The book of the week this week was, or from last week that I'll talk about tonight, is Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. And this definitely was an interesting book written by a historian. Rutger Bregman is a Dutch historian. He had a book um, several years ago. I have not read that. I think it's called Utopia for Realists. And um, this book, Humankind, and the emphasis is on the word kind, meaning that looking at the kinder side of human beings and looking at humanity and looking at human history through this lens of kindness or really trying to understand what is or, uh, or how do we understand human nature. And so One of the pivotal types of arguments that is in the book is looking between two philosophers and their mindset about um, humans and true, quote-unquote, true human nature. So we have Thomas Hobbes, who had more of a negative view of human nature, that we are essentially these um, bad creatures or creatures that are ready to do bad, but we need civilization in order to make us good. So when we have the structure and the laws and rules of civilization, we become good, but in our nature, we are not good. And then on the other side, you have the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he is saying that actually, in a way, it's the other way around. Human beings at our core or our nature is actually good. It is a civilization that has brought out bad sides of us. And so, these two, um, who were around in like the 17th century for a Hobbes, 16th, 17th century, they uh, still are in a way two philosophers who people look at or debate, or even if you don't know of them, and when you think about human nature, is it good or bad? Uh, these two philosophers, in a way, uh, are people that you're mentioning even if you don't mention them because their philosophies are, are that way. I think I lean more towards Jean-Jacques Rousseau that we are good, but I actually do think, as is generally the case, it's kind of a blend. Are human beings good or bad? Yes. We are good. We are bad. You can do good things. You can do bad things. Any of us can. But depending on our circumstances, our society, what's around us, that can uh, affect who we are. 
Um, but in a way, he's challenging in this book, Rudger Bregman, this mindset that humans are bad and we all just want to hurt and kill and, and uh, be aggressive if it weren't for the sake of um, civilization and the laws and the rules that externally get put on us. So are we internally bad and need this external? Or actually, are we more internally good? And then some things in society, civilization, can actually bring out some of the bad. And so I'll go through the book and, and in some ways show my own insights or thoughts um, that it's a little bit of both. So I, I really did enjoy the book because it gave this perspective. Often when we think of history, people think of the wars and the killing and all the negative things. Uh, but again, this book provides a different perspective. And so one of the things we have to look at is how are human beings before quote-unquote civilization, which we can look at as things like uh, farming, of settling down, creating then cities, states, nations. Before that, in hunter-gatherer tribes or hunter-gatherer nomadic tribes, that seems to be what our initial human ancestors were like or the, the ways they lived. What were people like? And even with that, there's some mixed opinions. Of course, when we're trying to figure out how people were 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, we're dealing with circumstantial evidence at best. We're trying to understand what they were like. And if we try to look at extent, uh, hunter-gatherer tribes extent, meaning currently alive or currently existing, well, oftentimes we might think they are like our ancestors, but usually they've had some interactions with quote-unquote civilization, civilized uh, nations or areas or people, and that can obviously have an impact. So it makes it difficult. Oftentimes, archaeologists will look at bones and look for uh, types of injuries. Of course, muscle injury, uh, flesh wounds won't be included in the archaeological record, but in the bones, you might be able to see some things. And there was a time when people thought the original hunter-gatherers were very violent, and that's the the image we have is of fighting and they're brutish, the caveman who is just, um, you know, all the negative things about being what we think of human as aggressive, violent, selfish, thinking only for themselves. Um, and so there was this type of a conclusion that was made. But Rutger Bregman shares in the book that there is some uh, evidence and some archaeologists that actually would say when you look at the archaeological record, you don't see a lot of injury that looks to have been caused human to human. There were, for example, um, people who were killed by uh, one of them where they thought it was going to be by the violence of another man or human, but it turned out it might have been a bird of prey, that it was a very large bird of prey that might have caused the damage that we saw in the bones of that individual, our, our ancestor from way back when. So uh, he does present this argument that we can say that we were what some people call the noble savage, meaning that we think of it as uncivilized because they didn't have the technology we have access to. They're living outside. So that's sometimes when we think of civilization, we think of buildings and structures and those types of things. So they were in that way uncivilized, but maybe they were very noble. And there's some evidence of this that people, um, when, they're, when we look at the hunter-gatherer tribes, they were not necessarily these constantly fighting, warring types of people. And my guess is it's somewhere in between. There was some um, fighting and some wars and things that were happening or battles that were happening, depending on how you define war. 
but it doesn't mean it was constantly this sense of fighting and battling. And now before I get into some of the book, what's interesting to keep in mind is when we think of, well, why does this even matter what we think of human nature? And of course, we want to try to be accurate. We don't want to just say what we hope to be true. And of course, we will have our biases based on what we hope to be true. But it does make a difference what we think of human nature, which he talks about in the book. And so to give you an example of that, and I'll, you know, we could talk about it in a more global scale, but if you're about to walk into a room of people, and before you walk in, I say, look, everyone in there is just waiting for the moment for you to turn your back, and they're going to hit you and try to steal all your money. That's just what they're waiting, everyone in there, they're just waiting for you to just have your guard down, not being paying attention, and they're just going to hit you, they're violent, they're just going to take your money and beat you up and they don't care about anything. Now, if everyone walks into that room and has been told this, what do you think the interaction is going to be like? You're going to be skeptical of other people. You're going to constantly be looking at them. You might preemptively strike or attack them and then all out brawl might ensue. Even if no one themselves had that thought or feeling, but just because they thought everyone else can be this way, this is quote unquote human nature. It very much it very likely is going to end up with lots of violence and negative things happening. If, on the other hand, I say you're going to walk in this room, everyone is kind, loving, they want to help each other, they're just a group of supportive people who you don't have to worry about, you're going to walk in, feel much more comfortable, much more relaxed. Your interactions are going to be much more comfortable and relaxed. And as a result, likely less bad things will happen. And so in a way, this is an exaggeration. And it doesn't mean it solves or explains everything, but it has a big impact in how we interact with one another, how we look at human nature. Are we just these vile, uh, aggressive, selfish beings? And if we don't have these civil, civilized rules and laws, we end up hurting one another and end up acting that way? Or might we actually be wired for kindness, friendship, uh, altruism, some of these types of things as well? So it does make a difference. And as he talks about in the book, Rutger Bregman mentions that, you know, how we make laws will affect this. So, for example, you might not even think about it, but when we talk about uh, a welfare state or support of people who don't have um, money or, you know, people who are in poverty, if you think, well, people are just bad and selfish, you're just going to try to take the money and they don't want to work. If that's your view of human nature, well, then, of course, you're going to be very skeptical of giving money to others. You're going to be very paranoid that people are going to take advantage of the system. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of that happening, but your mindset might be skewed that way. Or a big area we see this is in prisons. And he talks about the prisons in Norway, which in some ways sound like a, a country club compared to prisons here in the United States, but that they actually end up getting better results. When you treat human beings with decency and respect, they tend to act that way. But if you treat human beings as animals, as these really horrible, vile things, they're more likely to act that way too. And so that's what we see in our prison system in the United States. People go in there, it's very um, negative, dark, aggressive. They're treated like animals, even worse. Um, and of course, more than likely when they come out of jail, are you going to expect on top of and I talked about the book, The New Jim Crow, a few weeks ago. If they can't get a job or it's harder to get a job, harder to get housing, all these types of things, you think they're more likely to have a positive view towards 
um, their country or their city or the world, or they're going to be more negative or in some ways even trained to be criminals while they're in there with other inmates and in this kind of mindset. And then on the other hand, with Norway, when people are treated with respect, even if they've been um, sent to jail and the, the guards, I think, oftentimes don't even have weapons and they're engaging with the, the prisoners, they can make music, even they have a, um, a record label and it's called Criminal Records, which is kind of funny. Um, for the record label, they can work jobs, they can do all sorts of things that we might think of wouldn't make sense. But then when the people come out of jail, they're less likely to reoffend. The recidivism rate is lower. So we can see how just our mindset about people that there's, you know, somebody's in this sense is like this is them. There's these criminals that are just bad, evil people. And no matter what you do, they're going to do bad things. Well, first of all, if you treat them that way, they're more likely to act that way. And second of all, you're taking away the possibility of them becoming uh, rehabilitated, if you want to call it that, or bringing out the best of them, which is a win-win so that when they come out of jail, they're more likely to do good rather than to do bad. Um, so, uh, you know, the book, he goes into lots of different things. An interesting uh, chapter is called The Real Lord of the Flies. Now, The Lord of the Flies, most high school students in the United States have to read it. It was written by, uh, I think it's William Golding, if I'm not mistaken on his uh, name. Yes. And he, it's a book about these, I think it's like six boys, they get shipwrecked, um, and they end up living on this island or they're, they're stranded on this island alone. And it's essentially things start falling apart. They, they turn against each other. Even a few of them die. Spoiler alert, the book came out about 70 years ago. So if you haven't read it yet, I'm sorry if I ruined that kind of ending for you. But people saw this as this is real human nature. This is how people are when they're left to their own devices. Even though these were children, it was kind of looking at human nature. They, they have all sorts of problems. And so Rutger Bregman said, you know, I wanted to look for a real Lord of the Flies. And, and did this ever happen where some a group of boys were shipwrecked? And then what happened? And it turns out it did happen um, about, I think it, it happened in 1966. And this group of boys, they lived in this uh, island nation. I forgot where they were. Anyway, it's close to, to Tanzania, maybe. Nonetheless, they, they go out on a voyage and they end up getting shipwrecked. They fall asleep. They don't know where they are. They finally get onto land. And so for about, for over a year, they are stuck on this island by themselves. I think they're about 16 years old, like teenagers. And they finally are um, noticed by a captain of a ship who, who gets them. And they're actually still friends years later, which is really beautiful. And that's, that story's in the book. But these six kids, I think it was six of them, survive on this island. They tend to the fire. They have conflicts, as you can imagine, over the course of a year, but they find a way to deal with it. They have the two people who have a conflict walk far away from each other for a while, and they come back. And by the end, they have to hug or resolve their conflict. But we see that these boys, left to their own devices, didn't turn into this ugly, dirty, kind of selfish uh, things that we might imagine will happen if we don't have this veneer of civilization. They actually brought out a very good side of themselves. They enjoyed their time as much as possible. They were able to survive during that time. And then when they finally came off the island, they were okay. And so we see that maybe the Lord of the Flies, as much as we thought it was realistic, maybe it was in some ways pessimistic to think that if you leave people to themselves, they will just devolve 
into this horrible, ugly part of who we are. And after the break, I'll continue more about the book um, because there is a lot in it and some more insights. But looking at, you know, what we think about human beings and, and who they are and, and how we would act and how sometimes we might be skewed to the negative because that has some protective value for us. So uh, I'll continue after the break talking about the book Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment was talking about the book Humankind by Rutger Bregman, Humankind, A Hopeful History. And um, as I mentioned, you know, I was thinking about when I was reading this book, in general, as humans, we tend to worry about things or the way our anxiety works is it makes us worry more than we need to or even our fear response. So if, if a snake is in front of you or if you think it's a snake, it's better even to be wrong to think it's a snake that might kill you. Let's say it's a leaf that's blowing in the wind. It's better for you to respond that it's a snake than one time to not notice that an actual snake is there and then it kills you and you die. So uh, another analogy that there was a book, I think it was called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Dr. Ness, I think it was, N-E-S-S-E. That was maybe last year, um, one of the books I read. But I liked, he talked about a smoke alarm analogy that, you know, usually if your smoke alarm goes off in your house, thankfully, it's usually not a fire. Maybe uh, you're cooking something, you know, there's some smoke around, but not an actual fire that you need to worry about. So most of the time when your smoke alarm goes off, nothing wrong or no emergency is happening. And similarly, our anxiety, for example, can be seen in that same way. Usually the things we worry about, nothing happens. Oh my gosh, what if this happens? What if tomorrow I mess this up? What if someone gets hurt this way? Usually 99.9% of the things you worry about never happen, but you keep worrying. And so I think when it comes to human nature, in some ways we can be skewed towards the negative to think I have to be ready to protect myself from other people or that, you know, people are bad or they're, they're selfish. So we have to always look for an ulterior motive. In some ways, I think we're skewed in that negative way because it's more protective than to think you can just trust, even though I think it's better to have that trusting mindset. And a lot of times people do, but I think that's why there's such an appeal to this negative. You know, when we I talk about the Lord of the flies, people are like, this is real. This is what real people are like. Or when you um, see certain you know, reports or research showing a certain darker side, we think the real side of being human, that we only act good uh, in front of other people to get their attention. But as the book points out, that doesn't always seem to be the case. Um, for example, there's a lot of research showing, or uh, you, know, you can say data showing that in wars, people oftentimes don't shoot at each other. And I know it sounds strange. So they are missing each other a lot of times. Like, you know, they could shoot, but they seem to not be shooting. And a lot of soldiers that go to war, they end up not killing the other person. And even sometimes generals or people will complain. The problem with our soldiers is they just kind of won't kill. They don't want to kill. And so there does seem to be something innate in us that doesn't want to hurt someone else. Again, we do have some aggressive tendencies. We can get... Uh, can respond aggressively. I'm not saying no one ever does, but there does seem to be these human tendencies against violence. Or he talks about how um, in wars before where guns had bayonets, had kind of like a sword 
on the end of a gun. They were very rarely used, even though we're led to believe by things he says like games of Game of Thrones and other things that it's very easy for people to stab each other and, and, and pierce them and kill them that way. But it seems like people have a hard time with that. The more removed we are, the easier it is for us to kill. It's still hard. So shooting someone from far away is easier. And then unfortunately, the way wars have gone and the uh, technology of wars have gone, it's even more distant. You know, you send a drone where it's almost like playing a video game, of course, a video game with very real consequences, but you're basically controlling this thing that just goes and bombs some people. You never see them. You're distant from it. And that makes it easier for us to do that. But so it seems like we don't like actually hurting one another. It doesn't seem so natural that it's like we're not waiting um, to hurt one another. You know, he he gets into some uh, classic psychological studies and things like the, the Stanford Prison Experiment, which um, is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, psychology experiment of all time. And uh, it was done by Philip Zimbardo in Stanford. That's why it's called the, the Stanford Prison Experiment or Stanford Prison Study. And this was supposed to show how when people are put into certain positions, like the, it was guards and prisoners, regular boys, college students, that were actually tested to make sure they were the most normal um, so there wasn't any extreme psychological disturbances or issues. They became prisoners and guards, and after just a few days, he had to cut the, the experiment short. The, the guards started doing some really sadistic stuff to the, uh, the prisoners. Again, they were randomly assigned. They knew it was fake. And so this was led to show, again, look how bad we people are and people are just waiting to be sadistic and hurt one another. Now, it's not to say that study should be completely thrown out, but Rutger Bregman does share evidence that shows that when you look back in the archives, it wasn't just that these students were randomly acting in this way. The guards were actually coached by Philip Zimbardo and his uh, one of his head research assistants to be in certain ways mean and sadistic to the prisoners. So they were really egged on and pushed to act in a certain way uh, to show that, yes, we want to actually have results. We want to make something happen. And even it was spun in this way that they're trying to convince them, look, we want to show that prisons are bad and these are bad things. And if we can show how bad things can get, it might lead to things like prison reform. So he goes through that study and a few others that show that, you know what, maybe these studies we thought prove the negative side of being human might not be as black and white as we thought they were when you actually go into the study and see um, you know what was going on so it's not to throw it completely out uh, but it shows that there maybe is a little bit more gray to that to that story that people are not always so bad um, and so the book also uh, you know looks at things like schools at one point that people we need to play and then so civilization has moved us away from from playing and as I said, it's not to me that there's this idea that people are all good and we never would do bad things and that only, uh, you know, civilization has made us bad. But it does make you wonder, what does it even mean to be civilized in the ways we think of it or be advanced? Um, because we tend to think of it in a way of technology and that we always think of these brutes that we're living without technology. And now we are so good and advanced compared to them. Um, but when we look at some of those societies, very often they were very fair and kind to one another. 
people were not being actually treated badly. And, and in today's quote-unquote civilized world, we have a lot of situations where people are treated badly, where some people have a lot and some people don't have much at all or don't have enough. And is that really something very civilized? Is that something advanced? I actually think that's backwards. If you have 10 of something and there's 10 people and everyone has one, that to me is more advanced than if another group has 500 of them, but some people have way more than they need while other people are not having enough. Um, so, you know, there's a, a book he talks about in the book, um, the, the Better Nature of Our Angels, or what is it called by Steven Pinker, which essentially is saying how society has advanced. And it has, obviously, in lots of ways. But of course, it depends on how far back um, we're going and how you look at those those things and how, how far has society advanced. But I was talking to my, my brother Parham last night, and we were having a conversation about the book, and I was telling him a bit about it and about Steven Pinker's book. And I think society, of course, it has advanced. But we also have to ask, with what we have, what are we doing with it? So I was sharing with him this analogy that if you live in a house and you have a family or a certain number of people there, if everyone is not taken care of, but you have the means to take care of them, isn't that what we would consider very uncivilized? So if we had enough food for everyone, but some people were starving to death, but we say we have so much more food than people did in the past, wouldn't that even be a sign of being less civilized or less moral, at least not being as advanced in a moral type of a sense? And so I think we have to look at that type of a, a metric as well. It's not just, well, we have less people in poverty. That is good. We should look at those things. We have created things that can be good as well. But what are we doing with what we have? And the problem could be is that sometimes when we look at things that way, we can get complacent. So if we hear that people are suffering, we might say, well, you know what? Even if people are suffering, less people were suffering than before. So maybe we don't need to do anything about it. And so if you were, you know, using an analogy, if you were, there's some lake and some kids are dr drowning in that lake and you go save two of them and you say every year six kids have drowned in this lake and this year it's four and I drowned, I took, saved two of them, but four kids are still drowning in that lake and then you throw yourself a parade of celebration to say, look how much progress I have made, look how much pro progress we have made when those four kids are still drowning it can seem a little bit like you're missing the point. So I'm not saying looking at history is not important. And Steven Pinker um, has written many books that have contributed a lot to our understanding of things. But I think we have to be aware of the conclusions we take from certain messages. When we think, well, we're doing much better than we ever were before, that can be good. But maybe we're doing better in certain ways. But in other ways, like inequality, we are doing far worse. Because if we look at the hunter-gatherer societies, there was some inequality. There was some, at times, people would have a little bit of difference, but they didn't like having huge inequalities. So it wasn't that someone would have, you know, 500 times more than someone else. And really with the advent of farming and then um, cities, civilizations, and private property, we then created the possibility for larger inequalities, which is what we observe today, where someone like Jeff Bezos can have hundreds of billions of dollars and other people can have zero, can have none, or essentially have none. And this is the world that we have created based on things like 
uh, you know, civilization, as we call it, private property, capitalism, and the ways that markets can work and the ways that the world still works or doesn't work, in my opinion. And that's how we have this certain situation that we have. And I think in the last segment, I'm going to talk about this equality and related to that problem, uh, maybe a discussion on power, which came up a few weeks ago as well. Um, but that's something to think about. But to me, I've mentioned this before when I've discussed books on economics. I, I like the work of Thomas Piketty. I talked about the book um, Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, where it was looking at when we think about an economy and how it's building, how it's growing, and sometimes that's what we think of as growth in a country. It shouldn't just be something like GDP, how much money or you know the economy, how strong it is, quote unquote, but really we should look at also things like how many people are living in extreme poverty. What is the inequality gap or how strong has that become less or more, which is a complex thing to look at. But to me, that's much more important than just do we have more. Again, if we have more things, but then some people don't have anything and are dying from not having those things, can we really think that we have advanced? So one of the things that came up or one of the consequences of civilization, as we call it, and things like private property, was the extremes of inequality became possible. And to me, inequality is the biggest virus that has threatened humanity. I say that in a way, I know we're dealing with the, the virus of COVID-19 right now, but also when I was think, reading this book and thinking about it, I was recognizing how significant inequality has been in hurting individuals and hurting what I would consider the advancement of, of civilization. So in the next segment, I'm going to talk about that a bit more. This book, um, Humankind, is a very interesting book. I think it'll give you a different perspective. So I highly recommend it for that purpose to kind of look at things a different way, realize that you we maybe look at humans in a certain way, and this will give you some perspective on it. Again, I don't think humans are all bad or all good, but I think we have many aspects to our nature. It's not purely one thing, but how we create our society, what we consider and create as civilization can definitely affect what is brought out. And also we can see that uh, how we view humans can affect how we treat them and how they then respond. As I was saying about prisons or imagining yourself walking into a room and what you think about everyone else you're interacting with. So some things to think about about how we look at people and, and human nature. And this book um, does a great, a great job of that. And at the end of the book, um, it talks about in World War I, when it was, it was Christmas, and you would think, of course, they were fighting, they were killing, it was this ugly thing. But on Christmas, they started singing carols to one another. It's a very beautiful story, and I've seen it in another book as well, at least one other book. Um, but looking at what happened on Christmas where they actually started singing together. They started spending time together. They had a meal together. They be, had this whole bonding experience over Christmas. And even before, they were thinking, well, maybe on Christmas they're going to do a surprise attack because they think we won't be ready for it. But it turned out both sides and in different areas this, this happened. They even played games of soccer, I believe, and, and you know were enjoying each other's company. Again, these are enemies of war. But they came together in that moment. So I think it shows the complexity of human nature, that it's not all good or all bad. And those stories were really interesting. I found the book an interesting read. Um, there's a lot I got from it, that, and I would highly recommend it for that reason. Again, that's Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about uh, kind of picking up something I was mentioning before the break related to the book Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman about what I think of as one of the biggest plagues or viruses that we can say faces us, which is inequality. Um, Inequality to me, I know it's kind of one of those easy cliche things. No one says they want inequality or want to necessarily promote it. But um, when you look at what's happening in humanity, when you look at what's happened with civilization, quote unquote, really, as I mentioned before the break, it created these extremes or the possibilities, the potential for extremes of inequality. So before when we had hunter-gatherer societies, people were more or less equal. We had an egalitarian, even between men and women, the tendency seems to have been more equal than what we maybe experience later on. But then we changed to farming and really what started happening with agriculture and things of that sort is that some people, not that many, would benefit from everyone else's work, essentially. Not that black and white, but people were working much harder to do things like the farming, the agriculture, and the other work that started coming up. And there was a few people, whether they were from, you know, religious type of a thing, or they were from, you know, uh, military, whatever it was, somehow they were the ones in power. And so power and inequality, of course, are very much interrelated, And so when we started to have this inequality, really, when you look at people's experience, the average person's experience, or if you were just to pick someone at random, people's experience probably became worse when we became, quote unquote, more civilized because of this inequality. There were some people that were doing very well and very comfortable, and then most other people were suffering and working very hard. He mentioned in the book, I forgot the exact number of hours, but in the hunter-gatherer tribes, when we were living in that type of environment or society, our quote-unquote work week was not that extensive. It wasn't something like, you know, a 50-hour work week. But then when people started to have private property, started having farming and these different types of things, things changed. People had to work very, very hard for the benefit of other people. And so the paradigm of the world started shifting in a way, where there was this potential for inequality. And in Thomas Piketty's um, book, uh, Capital and Ideology, I was really taken by his idea when it talks about that the ideology part is that throughout history, and including today, there has been inequality, and or in the kind of civilized time that we talk about, and always there's been an ideology to explain why there is this inequality. Well, you know, the king has been ordained by God and he comes from God. He's essentially God himself in some ways or the mouthpiece of God on earth. So of course we all have to do whatever we can to to please him and he deserves more than us. So of course if he's not working and living in the palace and has all these things, it makes sense. There's, There's something to this. He's protecting us. He's taking care of us. And if we don't take care of him, we are not okay. And so then everyone else is you know, the majority of people are dealing with working very hard, not getting very much, but somehow they get convinced, sometimes they're not, and this can lead to a revolution or revolts of different kinds, but they're told that somehow this is okay or they believe it. And so we see how inequality and power get inextricably linked. And he talks about in this book, uh, power and how corrupting it can be. 
I think it was Lord Acton that said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you are given a lot of power or too much power, almost always it will start to corrupt you, start to make you uh, be worse. So power, I think, brings out negative aspects of our human nature when it's unchecked, when we're given too much power. So those things together, I think, is something as a society we have to be mindful of. The extremes of inequality and then very much related to that, extremes of power, that no one person, individual, or group gets too much power over everyone else. No individual uh, or group should have too much stuff, whatever that is, uh, we're talking about wealth, let's say, than other people. And of course, I know this gets into uh, arguments or even very clearly talking about things like socialism or communism versus capitalism. I can understand that and I see that. Uh, but I definitely think the unchecked kind of thoughts of capitalism being the best thing for everyone or a free market is the best thing for everyone, to me, does not make sense precisely for these reasons. Because like a virus... Uh, inequality begets more inequality. It starts to spread. Because if you have inequality and then that creates power, you are able to use that to then create even more. If we didn't have any types of regulations, let's say in the markets, once you have a market share, it's very easy to create a monopoly. And that's why we have, even though we say, let's say the United States as a capitalist country or, or, or economy, we have antitrust laws to prevent companies from becoming a monopoly because we know that's not fair so we inherently know that if you just have this market that you know everything is everyone for themselves power begets power and then that inequality will beget inequality which is bad for humanity overall when we have inequality it leads to tension it leads to problems down the line and so this is when we talk about civilization what does it mean to be civilized if some people are suffering while others are doing really, really well. I saw this interesting documentary, which had very little dialogue looking at, I think it was in the, the Arab world. I didn't even know what country it was or countries, but seeing, showing the lives of these very, very wealthy individuals. I mean, like one of the scenes, the, guys get in, the guy gets into a Lamborghini with his cheetah, like the animal <laughs> cheetah. And, you know, so we're talking about these types of wealthy individuals have more money than you know what to do with. And it was just so, you know, interesting seeing this and then other millions of people in their, um, in their country are doing so poorly and somehow this is okay or civilized. To me, it does not make sense to see it that way, that this is advancement to have such inequality. So I'm very much in the favor of reducing the extremes of inequality doesn't mean sameness doesn't mean everyone has exactly the same amount of money of stuff you can have some level of difference but not extremes of difference that leads first of all it's just inhumane to have some people suffering but then also it leads to problems it leads to issues it leads to tension and we don't get the best out of the world because if everyone it's not taken care of. Everyone does not have the resources they need. We, first of all, again, it's inhumane, but we don't benefit from what they can contribute. So it's always a win-win when we take care of more people. And this is why when we've had advancements for different groups and their rights and their 
um, you know, the way we look at them in society from the LGBTQ community to, to blacks in America, which still, of course, we're working on to women in the world in America, the whole world or whatever the community is benefits when we then get the contributions of those individuals as well. And of course, they get to live a more fulfilled life, a meaningful life and have that freedom to be a person in the fullest degree that they can be. So it's an ultimate win-win. So I'm very much in favor of creating society, creating a world that reduces inequality. Because also when the stakes become so high, when you can win, so to speak, and do so much and have so much more than everyone else, and if you lose, you can maybe have nothing. I think that does bring out the negative side of us because we feel like we should do anything to get to that point. We make the stakes too high. It doesn't bring out the best in us, that type of competition. It brings out the worst. Some people in the commercial break um, asked on Instagram Live about things like greed. It brings out that greedy and more of that selfish side because I don't know if I don't get mine, I might not get enough. Or if I don't get a lot, other people might take it. And then I, so I have to kind of get this winner takes all type of mentality, which I think does not contribute to the benefit of, of humanity or individuals or, or the group. And then lastly, related to that, I want to talk about power. And when we look at institutions of things like government or even in um, a workspace, and he talks about in the book, uh, Humankind, uh, Rutger Bregman gets into that topic in different ways, things like participatory type of governments or some cities where uh, the people get to decide the budget to a degree. They can all contribute to that and the benefits that we, we see. And so power is this very um, interesting topic as well, which relates to inequality where, you know, we have government, for example, here in the United States, and we talk about the balances of power, the checks and balances. And there is, of course, some of that to a degree, but you don't really see that where people, um, the power is not something that is extreme or is in the hands of the few, even here in the United States. Yes, you can all vote, and I hope everyone will, um, coming up here in the United States in a few weeks. But I don't think it's really what we want or to me what democracy can look like when it is more something that everyone is participating in. And so the last thing I wanted to talk about is when we look at positions of power, unfortunately, we think of power as something that I get power and then everyone serves me, the king, the queen, the president, everyone is serving me. But what I actually think we should think of positions of power in our own lives and as a society is the other way around. You gain a type of power, and not in some extreme way, but the power you get is actually to be in service to others, to serve other people. And even, you know, being a servant to others. By servant, I don't mean less than others. You know, Persians say things like, no, karatan, to say like, I'm your servant, to say I'm putting myself below you. We're so hierarchical. Um, but not that type of servant as in I'm less than you, but that I can serve others. Because uh, I've mentioned this before, and it's tying to lots of different topics, but when I consider success, I think of someone who has given a lot, some, not someone who's gotten a lot. And if you want to live a fulfilled life, it means that you are giving of yourself. You're giving gifts. That's when you're going to feel good about yourself. So when we assume some type of position of power, even if you're a teacher, and then especially if you're a parent, you are acting in service of that role. So in a way, it's like you're wearing the robe of that role, which is a responsibility, not that you get certain attention or certain uh, things from that. You are not being served. You are serving 
with your power. You are the teacher of the class. Yes, you are the teacher. You should have some level of responsibility and authority even in the way that you run the class. But it's not that you are now in power that I, they, I can do whatever I want, that they should serve me, that these kids have to do whatever I want. No, I'm serving these kids and trying to help them with their education. And of course, just as a role model or teaching other values as well, this is my role. Similarly, as a parent, you are not the owner of these kids. These kids, I think it's from Khalil Gibran, it's not that you own the kids, you owe the kids. You owe the child to take care of them, to raise them the best way, to give them love. Yes, you might have to have some authority to set boundaries and structure, but all in the service of your child not to be above them. And in all positions of power, I think we have to shift the mindset from getting because of my power, but actually what I can give based on this responsibility, power, or role that I now have. I have a lot more thoughts on this topic and the ones related to it, but we are uh, at the end of tonight's show. Um, again, the book of the week for this week is going to be The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli J. Finkel, How the Best Marriages Work. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. As always for the Monday show, thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.